The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is from Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And, was, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Bryce. Well, I don't know, uh, maybe our medical community in here might know who this is. And I may even have a hard time saying his name, even though I've seen it for quite some time, a man named Ignaz Simmelweis, if you've heard this name before. Uh, If you haven't, you're going to actually know who he is in a second, because His work has been unparalleled. In the uh, mid-19th century, uh, he was a Hungarian doctor who was actually uh, in a a hospital in Vienna. And he noticed that as he was working, uh, and he was working with students as well, that several of the women that were giving birth in his OB rounds were actually uh, dying after childbirth. It was in that time called purple fever, or uh, commonly known as childbed fever. And he constantly had these questions about what is going on. And as a student, uh, he wanted to figure this out. So he was kind of having all these sort of hypotheses about why would this happen? Because he noticed it was happening with uh, these specific women, but not in other areas, not with midwives, not with other people. He's like, why are these women specifically dying of this? Well, as he continued to look, he kind of came to this conclusion that possibly students in their rounds were actually not uh, washing their hands thoroughly. And so that they may be carrying something to the pregnancies and when they're washing their hands, even if a little bit, it wasn't enough because they would be working with a cadaver or working in another field in the hospital and come and deliver these children Well, here's what was really interesting about it. He began ordering the medical staff to start cleaning their hands, not just with soap, but with chlorine solution. And chlorine itself, because he thought 
Gosh, the chlorine, it will help the smell, it'll help kind of reduce kind of the, what, you know, the stink of what was on the student's hands beforehand. What he noticed in his work, though, was it was that the chlorine mixed with the soap was actually killing the germs and the purple fever began to reduce. How fascinating. That just simply by teaching his students to really commit to washing their hands, that they could get rid of something that, that was a dramatic problem in that time. And it, it wasn't interesting because if you think about it, they, they, they recognized the effects of something that was so powerful, it was causing death and destruction, and yet they could not see it. We're, we're talking about some interesting things this morning. If you're visiting, welcome. We're talking about Satan, demons, and those kind of things. Happy Halloween. But it is, in a church, specifically maybe in our background, it is something where we recognize there's evil around us. I mean, would it be that hard to turn on the television and feel like total despair about the things that we read? I mean, even of what happened yesterday in Pittsburgh, how horrible. We see evil all over the place. And yet, oftentimes it's not this kind of, for, you know, persona it's this kind of like general evil we talk about. We don't typically think about Satan, the devil, or demons in that way. We recognize effects, but we don't often, as even as we should, and we read passages like this, and yet we don't realize that it's not just impersonal force, there's actual work being done intentionally to destroy us and everything around us. There actually is. See, the ancients believed that there was not just an evil inside of us, that yes, you can see that all day long. There's something inside of us evil, but they believed there was an evil outside of us and that both worked in conjunction with one another. And the more that you continue to, to see and give in to the sin and, and mess and evil inside of you, the more you can even see more of that evil outside of you. And it causes a continual work of destruction. Here's what's interesting about this passage. Jesus is intentionally led out and meets an intentional figure. It's not that Jesus just goes out and is just tempted to do these things. There's actually someone named the devil who is tempting Jesus. Who is intentional in the way that he addresses him. And if this is true, which I believe it is, and we believe in this church that the Bible is really presenting a reality, that there's more going on around us than we see, than we understand, then we need to really be mindful and recognize that Jesus, and, and you even saw it, when you walked into these doors, we have banners, hopefully, I think, I'm assuming it's up, <laughs> that there's a banner out there that says, following Jesus and loving people, places, and things to life. Why don't we put that? Because the effects of this intentionality of Satan and his work is not just in people, it's in places and things. As far as you see sin in you is as far as much and even beyond that there is a, a person and an army and a war going on utilizing and using those things for destruction. And we, we, we know it's true. We, see, we, just, we may not see the people. We know the effects. 
Not just watching it on television, but, but look, our infatuation with even uh, the, the, the horror movie culture. I think it's fascinating to me even the, the amount of as much as we are such a materialistic scientific community that even one of the greatest, most um, heralded things in our culture right now is supernatural TV shows, movies, discussions on all sorts of things and most of them deal with evil. I mean, do a research study. It's fascinating. It's because we know that there's more. There's more to it. And so I want us to ask three questions about this passage. Three questions that I think get to the heart of what is going on here. And for us to kind of unpack it and leave knowing, okay, what's the point of this? Okay, first one is, who is the tempter? Let's understand this tempter. Who is this? Second is, how is Jesus tempted? And third is why, okay? Who, how, why? Pretty simple questions to ask. Let's look at the the who is it. Look, I want to begin just by thinking about this passage. And even as you read this, I don't know what you took from it when you heard it, but but it does draw out this this kind of natural question. If you want to really engage in culture, you know all the questions we talk about? Let's engage in culture, faith and work. I mean, our church believes in mercy and justice, faith and work, and we're talking about it all the time. We have meetings, seminars, like things, this thing we're about to do uh, that Tom just announced. If we want to engage in culture, we also have to know what are we engaging against? Like, why do these things? What is the deal? Because we're wanting to proclaim something. We're wanting to discuss and look into the ways that it is broken and that there is evil moving within and without. How do we live faithfully in that? And again, I want to go back to the fact that Jesus is led. Notice, it says, full of the Holy Spirit returned from the Jordan, from his baptism, led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Now, that's not what you would think. Full of the Holy Spirit, you'd think it'd be like, let's begin ministry. No, sent right into the wilderness. And that's actually a pattern all through the Old Testament as well. That those who who encountered the Holy Spirit were not led to these glorious events. They were led into the wilderness. It was a common rabbinical understanding that if you were going to be full of engaged with God, be his, there would be a proving and a testing. And notice, he's not tempted and tested by just man, I've been fasting for 40 days. There's an intentional tempter that comes. Someone who comes to do it. And and we typically, we may have in our mindset of, you know, especially since it's Halloween, this is, it is intentional that we're doing this passage when Halloween is around. But we typically think of those kind of things, those evil things. But Satan doesn't promote himself as the typical, you know, pitchfork kind of thing or this evil look. Shakespeare even said it beautifully when he said, the devil hath power to assume a pleasing shape. That he has a pleasing shape. It's not like this is some, you know, bad looking person that comes. But it's someone who comes to tempt, not as, as somebody who's waging war, but to negotiate with Jesus. Hey, Jesus, let's, let's talk about this. And he even throws it out there. If you are the son of God, he says that twice, right? If you are the son of God, he's not saying if you are. He knows what he's saying. What he's wanting him to do is prove it. He's wanting him to say, come on, show me. Oh, I know you are. You have that title. Hey, 
prove it. You can own your title right now. You've been given the title. Show me the title. It's interesting when you look in the New Testament, and you should do this. When you leave here, this is what I'm going to charge you to do. Go, and even on your phone, it may even be easier for you, look up how many times the devil or Satan comes up, in particularly the New Testament, and the descriptions of him. And not just in one book, but talks about his work and how he addresses himself. I mean, Peter says this, be sober, mindful, watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's a pretty apt description that he prowls around. Even in the beginning in Genesis, it talks about sin and temptation being when Cain and Abel. It says that it's crouching at the door. There's this personification and, and there's this movement of that, it, that we're supposed to understand there is this reality to the tempter. And it's easy for us to do a couple things. One is either to give too much credence to Satan and, and demons. Sometimes we may do that. We may give and lend a lot of it to those kind of elements. Maybe you don't, but maybe this is one of those aspects that you go to. We live in such an individualistic community and, and culture that it can be easy to say, gosh, it's just, I just feel like it's all this, all attack. But what can happen easily, and when we do that, is we give too much credence, we're not looking at the reality of our hearts. We can miss the sin that actually is within for maybe a, an impersonal force. And so we say, gosh, I just, you know, there's so much satanic movement, satanic, I just feel attacked, 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 and may not own our own sin. That may be even a way that Satan can work in us. The other way is how we give him no credence at all. Uh, We can typically look at Satan as kind of this, you know, uh, maybe in our pragmatic culture, this kind of impersonal force. We talk about it symbolically. You know, you kind of watch TV, see systems of st- and structures in your place, and you go, that is so evil. You see an event happen. That is so evil. But are we thinking that there's actually an evil one behind it? Remember that great movie, Usual Suspects, used that, used that line, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled. It's actually from a French poet, Baudelaire, who actually said this, the finest trick of the devil is to persuade you that he does not exist. It's an ancient saying. We can easily lend to one side or the other. We can look at that in that way, symbolically, individualistically. How do you tell? How do you know? Here's how you tell. What are the ways in which you see your sin and that you need to own it? That it's not like out here, that it's here. But also, what do you see are the places where over and over you're tempted or attacked or led into that. That is a conjunction. You can see the meeting. And it's not just a, you know, here and here. It works like a hand in a glove. And I think it'd be really interesting for us in a church that we proclaim uh, deep theology where it's easy. We talk about sin a lot. We can do that. We can parse it. We can discuss it. But where do we know that we own our sin and then we even move into, you know what? This isn't just sin. I'm being attacked. I'm being put in trial. I'm believing lies. The accusations, they're coming in. We need to recognize the tempter and that he really exists and that he's really there. 
Guys, as much as if you're going to say, I believe in Christianity and Jesus, then you have to say there's someone else in there. And that he's really at work. He's really doing this. How much do you spend time praying? As much as the New Testament actually talks about our sin, how much do you and I spend time praying against Satan in our lives? Do you know how much the New Testament talks about this? There's that famous passage, if you, if you know Ephesians, which is a, a letter written by Paul, the very last chapter talks about the armor of God. Remember, this was the great thing you could do in Sunday school class, some of you who may have grown up in church. Put on the full armor of God. And we'd like do it like, There's, I mean, the whole point of that passage is not just for us to look cool in armor. It was actually every line, line by line by line by line, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, is talking in that passage, in that letter to the Ephesians to say, you must wear the armor of God because Satan will come in every way. He will hit you here. He will hit you here. He will hit you here. He will come at you in every way he can. We have to know there's a real tempter. But how does Jesus get tempted? Let's see the actual interactions. It starts, he says, in this very first one, that he's led out, he's tempted, and he ate nothing during those days, verse two, and when they were ended, he was hungry, naturally. The devil said to him, if you're the son of God, command the stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. You know, at first, it just seems like a normal need. It's like, okay. But this, this is really profound at what's happening. Again, he's not challenging him on his sonship. He's challenging him to say, you got the title, use it. I mean, if you really are, you can make this bread, this stone bread eat. I mean, what's the big deal? And what is he wanting him to do? He's wanting him to say, you know what, you're right. God really isn't giving the best to me right now. Like, I really have a need. I need to meet it. If I experience this, this is, talk about something that is really profound for us in our culture, is if we experience a need, why not meet that need? Especially if you have a means to do it, why wouldn't you do it? I mean, I'm hungry, I need this, I need that, I need to buy this, I need to have this relationship, I need to get to this kind of place in life, why not do it? I mean, this is going to sound interesting to you, and maybe you're like, mm. but I talk to more and more students, especially if you're a student in here maybe, and more and more students who say that the idea of an honor council at schools is no one wants to be on it, because cheating is, a, is becoming more actually accepted as a form of, hey, I have this need of getting this position, this place in my ranking, this job. And some of you are like, oh my gosh. But you know what? Like, I, I know somebody even I went through school with, and they said, you know what? If I need to cheat, I, I do it. Why is that wrong? See, Jesus is saying here that just because you experience something that's difficult, does that mean you need to get out of it? It causes you to feel this way or that. Do we medicate it? Do we fulfill it? What do we often feel? We feel shame. We feel lonely. We feel lack of intimacy. We fill it with something. And he's just doing the same to Jesus. Isn't that how the tempter comes? And here's the thing. Most of the time when he does, what 
Don't we typically do when we feel tempted in those ways is to say, the consequence really isn't that bad. And I'll feel a little bit of fulfillment in the moment. So I might as well just do that. Do you see how difficult this was? Imagine where Jesus was. He puts himself in that position where you and I experience that. And he he receives temptation. There's a New York Times article that said, struggle with self-control? Take yourself out of the equation. Instead of trying to will yourself to resist temptations, simply remove them. A 2011 study examined how people dealt with, deal with self-control, found that those of us who are best at it aren't more strong-willed or dedicated. They simply experience temptation less. In fact, the very idea that we can improve our self-control is in question. A 2016 study found that training self-control through repeated practice does not result in generalized improvements in self-control. In other words, don't beat yourself up over lack of self-control. We're wired to be bad at it. (laughs) So the article goes on to say, just remove the item. If there's a problem with temptation about this thing, just take it out of the equation. But what happens? You just find something else. Here's what Jesus does. Imagine, that when you do that, that may help you for a time behaviorally, but does that get at your core? You just set yourself up a fence, but hey, here's another thing I can go to. Jesus does something different in this temptation. He doesn't just say, yeah, I'm just gonna remove that. He says, I'm gonna experience it and obey in the midst of it. He doesn't remove it. He says, I'm going to feel the pressure of this need in a way that just every single one of us does and still obey. He still obeys. He continues forward. He fights the devil in that. He even goes further in the second one when the devil comes again. He says, in even a profound way that we'd think, the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you, I will give all this authority in their glory. For it's been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. And if you then will worship me, it will be all yours. It will be all yours. You know, it sounds kind of funny, because you think, well, does Satan really have that? But if you read in the New Testament, Satan actually has titles like prince of the powers of the air, ruler of kingdoms. He actually has some authority given, almost like it would be a fish in a fishbowl. They have freedom to roam and reign and do whatever they want within that bounds and that confinement, but they can do whatever they want. Satan has that. There's a reason he can actually show them that and say, hey, I'll have this. And here's the temptation. At first it thinks like, here's authority, you get all power, but let's go further than that. The temptation is for Jesus to look and say, I could do some serious impact without all the mess. Like he knows that the cross is ahead. So does Satan. And if, hey, you don't have to hurt so much, Jesus. You can have the same impact. You you can still do real good here. You, You can still make real change. You can have authority and power and influence. You see what he's doing? 
and I need to say this to us because this is really an, a real profound way for us to fall into this temptation, is that he, he tempts us to take up power and influence without us going through the cross. So there's something unique here, and this happens over and over in the New Testament, is that the cross becomes a crisis a crisis for the followers of Jesus. Even, even Peter himself, when Jesus says, hey, I gotta go to my death, and Peter's reaction is, are you kidding? Why would you go to the cross? You know what the whole discussion's about? How do we, how do we have power? How do you have authority? How do we dethrone the problems and issues of what's going on already in Israel and Jerusalem? And can't you take up the crown? Why in the world would you talk about a cross? You know what Jesus says back to him? Get behind me, Satan. Whoa, whoa. At first you read that and you think, okay, you're being a little severe. Why would Jesus say that to him? Because he's saying, no, 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 no. You don't understand, Peter. In order to make impact and influence, I can't, I can't cower to that. I can't avoid the cross. And that's exactly what Satan wants him to do. If you worship me, if you just work, all you gotta do is bow down and you can make real good, real change. Here's the question. For all of our desire for social justice and impact, where does Satan creep in? Because we're all about it. It's not that it's not a good thing, but where do we say this is a good thing? Where do we compromise our worship in the midst? Where do we think we can make lasting impact and change? Look, we're in the midst, and we don't need to go into it, but even thinking of the political season we're in. I mean, you see ads, you see signs everywhere. I don't know where you are in this room. I'm not really, like, interested in asking you that. No offense. Some of you in this room may be like, we have to have this person in office, and if we don't, we're gonna fall apart. Some of you are like, I'm so tired of it. I don't even wanna do anything about it. Hey, where does Satan hold both of you? Because he's in both. To the extent sin is in us and in the systems and in the place, so is Satan. He's in your apathy about politics. He's in your overindulgence into politics. He's into all of it to try and dissuade you from thinking that the true power, as the Bible says, comes from a crucified Savior. Does that sound crazy? Do you see why Satan was so smart? Jesus, you don't have to go through all this. You don't have to. It's not... It, you, can, you can make lasting change without pain. And isn't that what we want to do? We want to escape the pain. How can we get rid? How can we deal with evil? How can we do this and that? One of the greatest lines I've ever heard from C.S. Lewis is in his book that talks about this. Many of you may be thinking of it. It's called Screwtape Letters. It's a book he wrote about devils talking to each other about how to impact us. And listen to what he says. Our cause, this is the devil talking to the junior devil, 
Our cause is never more in danger than when a human no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will, that is God's will, looks around upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. This is why Christianity is so unique. Jesus doesn't just address needs of things for us. He's not just about, when we sing a song and it says all things are working, he's intentional. You know why we sing that over and over again? It's because we've got to hear it over and over again. This is why the Psalms are repetitive. This is why you and I forget because we are, our sin drives us to forget and we have an enemy that says you don't need to remember that. Jesus is intentionally putting himself in the position of experiencing the temptations that you and I are and does it yet without sin. So much so that it finishes this way. He says, he took him to Jerusalem and set him in the pinnacle of the temple. And said, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands, they will bear you up lest strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, you shall not put the Lord your God to a test. What in the world? Why would he do that? Because if you read about what Jesus is doing over and over, he's saying, prove yourself who you are. And you know what? This echoes the rest of the New Testament. When Jesus walks in the midst of the Pharisees and others around him, they say, do a miracle, do a work, show us. If you show us, then we'll know that you're really the son of God. Prove yourself, make it known. But what happens when we do that? Here's the temptation, is to put our faith on God changing or doing something for us, manipulating him by our circumstances and by what we want rather than who he is. That's the testing, that's the proving. Where do you think, here's the question, where do you think God is not God because he's not doing something that you really want him to do in your life? I mean, you're going to think I'm crazy. When I was little, I even had this embedded in my mind. Before I, was, I would even consider myself a Christian, I remember falling asleep as a little kid, before I fell asleep as a little kid and saying, praying, God, if you're really God, I'll wake up and you'll put gold on my nightstand. Now, I don't know why. I don't look at me. I don't wear any gold. I don't have any interest in why I will love gold, you know, put gold on my nightstand. You know, like why? It makes no sense. What was I doing? Even from a young age, not even knowing it, I'm wanting to prove that God is worthy. Your, your character, your goodness, all those things we want to sing about is only good if you meet what I really need. If you do what I ask you to do. God says no. Is our faith contingent on that? Is it contingent on what he does for us or who he is. That's what Satan is trying to get out of here. But why? Here's the interesting thing. Why is Jesus doing all this? What's the point? What's the point of it? Look, I don't know if you notice this every time, but every time that Jesus talks to the devil, he quotes from somewhere. And he quotes from a book that 
I venture, I don't know if many of you have read, it's called Deuteronomy. It's an Old Testament book. And what he's quoting about is all the places and ways in Deuteronomy, in the first, it's one of the first five books of the Old Testament, where Israel fell short. Actually, think about what he's doing. It says this, why does Luke start with, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, led by the Spirit, for 40 days tempted by the devil? Why, why tell us 40 days? Why quote from Deuteronomy? You know what he's trying to get us to see? Is that Jesus is positioning himself, putting himself as the representative for us and for all of Israel. See, every line he's quoting, if you look it up in Deuteronomy, back in the Old Testament, it talks about how Israel failed at letting God meet their needs. Israel failed. We've gotta be like these other kingdoms. Give us a king. Israel failed in the ways of of, of power, authority, wanting those things. And Jesus says, I'm here to fulfill it. I am putting myself in the path of temptation with the ultimate tempter in order to represent you and all of history and succeed. That there's only been one who has done that. This is why the New Testament authors say to us, you resist the devil. Why does Peter, James, Paul, all these people, every one of them, if you look it up, they all say, resist the evil one. How in the world do you do that? You have it right here. This is why it ends this way. Then when the devil ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. What was that opportune time? That right there. The opportune time to send him to the cross, to crush him finally, and what would he do? It would be by his body and blood that he fulfills the defeat of Satan himself. This table is not just about you coming forward and believing that he addresses every sin in your heart. He addresses every evil outside of you at this table. That's what we believe. That we believe he is that powerful. Because at this table, you're tasting, you're tasting the reality and the victory that you can resist the evil one. Because he gives you the strength. Because there's a victor who's done it. And it wasn't your blood. Hebrews even says this. You haven't resisted temptation to the point of shedding blood, almost as if it says, have you? No, who has? Jesus. You can taste the victory. It is yours. Could we believe that every lie that you've heard, every evil you see outside of you and you see coming from you is met in the blood and body of Jesus Christ? Praise be to God. Can I hear an amen? Can I hear an amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.